What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of BDE with yours truly, Frack Slap and Nimble Fatty, aka Chuck Yates. Chuck, what's up? I dude, dude, I hate to do this, but let's go ahead and do this. Story number one. <laughs> Time Magazine has named their 108th person of the year. They started in 1927. It's your boy, Elon Musk. Colin, fanboy away. Did you see how he didn't even want to talk in the intro? He was just like, hate to do this, but we got to do this just because he wanted to set up the uh, fan, the Elon fanboy uh, <laughs> session of the show. I'm glad I have a Diet Coke. Knock, <laughs> knock yourself out. Yeah, I mean... You brought up a good point. You know, we were talking about this this morning that time, you know, what I like about having Chuck on the show is that he's old. So he'll go back and remember and reflect throughout history and <laughs> think about everyone else that has been time person of the year. Brought up a great point that there's never been anyone on the cover of Time magazine that is pro energy. And I thought that to be um, a pretty interesting thought and brought up my next question is Elon Musk an energy persona and you uh you know you you were talking about there's been a couple of automobile um uh, you know type figures on the show so is he automobile or is he energy what's your take i know my take what's your take so this is what's interesting so if you look back um walter chrysler was actually the second winner uh in 1928 man of the year obviously the namesake of chrysler motors um, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Oh, Harlow Curtis was CEO of GM in the fifties when they had their first billion dollar, um, net profit. They were almost there, not because of the freedom of the automobile and transportation. They were all almost there because of business leaders. And you kind of get the vibe that Elon Musk being there is, not so much maybe transportation guy, not so much energy guy, but just being the richest guy in the world, business type leaders. So I'm going to give you a push. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when people talk about Tesla, you have some people like uh, Chamath, you know, was all over CNBC last year saying that, hey, Tesla's not a car company, it's an energy company. And essentially the way that they back this claim is by saying that, uh, Tesla is a distributed energy company and that they're going to have all of this battery capacity uh, distribution through their, through their cars, which is actually, I mean, you know, Ford's doing this with their F-150 Lightning where it has bi-directional uh, transmission from the batteries. So if the grid goes down, you can use the electricity that's stored in your battery to power your home. So it can help with um, some load balance on the grid. But at the end of the day, it's a car, right? And um, I don't think that Tesla's an energy company. And then, you know, as far as putting Elon as time, uh, you know, person of the year, I, whether you like Elon or not, he has a massive impact on the world and yes. very influential person. Um, you know, I wouldn't say the most powerful person. I think most powerful person is probably Mark Zuckerberg. Um, just with the amount of uh, data that he has. But I think that Elon Musk is the most influential person in the world. And, you know, even I, I saw a tweet. Um, I can't remember who it was from today, but they're an Elon hater. And they're like, hey, 
one thing he's done is he's been able to land rockets. He's like, and that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. it was Max. I think it was Max. Gall- uh, it was Max. Yeah, that said that. Um, but you know, I think that whether you love him or hate him, you can't deny that he has a pretty big influence on on the world, and that's enough to win personally well, in my mind. You know, I'm the video genius behind all these wonderful clips we play during the show. But today, <laughs> we're gonna go old school with the chalkboard. So when you look at the time person of the year, like I said earlier, 1927, the first winner, Charles Lindbergh, there have been 108 selections. 11 of those have been classes of people. So think like the American soldier, the whistleblowers, two inanimate objects, the computer and the endangered planet Earth from 1988. We ought to go read that article and see how many years we had to live back in 88. But what I did in a very unscientific study, because this is all me, I looked at each one of these 108 selections, and I said from the moment they won the award for the rest of their lives, were they winners or losers? Actually, 33 losers out of that. And uh, let me give you a funny example of one of those. Winston Churchill actually won the award twice. So the first time he wins it in 1940, I give him the win, right? Because he he is arguably as important as the American soldier in winning World War II from that moment on, right? He then turns around and wins it in 1949, and he's also named the person of the half century there. He resigns from office in 1955 with the lowest approval ratings ever. So we have some split stuff on that. No one loves you forever. Yeah, exactly. You can't stay on top. Exactly. But... (laughs) To go back to your original point about energy, when you look at the winners, we've had Mohammad Mossadegh, if I pronounce that right. He was the leader of Iran that kicked out BP and nationalized the oil fields in Iran. Two years later, he got booted from office, so he actually got the loss for that. Uh, You have Fasal, who was the uh, king of Saudi Arabia during the embargo, who won it. Like I said earlier, you had the endangered earth. You had the whistleblowers, so maybe that's a negative story because Sharon Watkins was Enron. And then you had Greta. I mean, you've never had a positive uh, person on energy win this. And the reason I bring that up is we sit here and feel so persecuted because it's the liberal media that comes after us. Time magazine has not been the liberal bastion the whole time. I mean, people in the 30s and 40s accused it of being way too pro-business. And still, we've never had a positive energy person win man of the year. When last week we talked about the East Texas oil field helped us win World War II because of that. So that's some perspective when we think about energy advocacy. We've always sucked at this. Yeah. And I saw some uh, chatter on Twitter online that... People were blaming uh, Mark Benioff, who, if you don't know Mark, here's a picture of him. He's the founder of Salesforce and recently bought Time. I think he bought Time last year or maybe the year before. And he's also vested um, in Elon Musk companies. And so people are like, (laughs) oh, he's just using Time as a platform to uh, put – Elon Musk up there. And I'm like, Elon Musk doesn't need any more of a platform. Like he's got Twitter. That's all, <laughs> that's all he needs. But Boy, I'm the richest man in the world, but that time magazine cover really put me over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's actually been an interesting point about the uh, man of the year is historically, they've always said the person that has the most impact positive or negative. So Hitler won it. 
uh, Ayatollah Khomeini won it. But what they found were subscriptions went down, particularly when it was anti-American type folks that 9-11 happens and arguably bin Laden was the most influential. They give it to Giuliani. Yeah, I was going to say, can you imagine time putting a figure like Hitler on the front of it in today's day and age? Like, yeah, yeah, no, crazy. Like, like Fauci. Canceled. Imagine if they put canceled. Fauci. Well, I mean, you could make a case that Fauci was the most influential person this year. Yeah, you could. But I mean, Fauci has some bootlickers that like him, so they would. Yeah, you know, they wouldn't get canceled over that. Snoopy wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> so, what do we got? All right, next? story number two. <laughs> All right, we got bonus season. Colin, what would you do if you won $75,000? If I won $75,000, I don't know what I would do. Um, I know exactly what what you would do. What would I do? I wrote it right here. I'm guessing (laughs) you'd buy six Bitcoin miners for the house. (laughs) That's not um, unreasonable. Send pictures of that to Bomber. Yeah, that's not unreasonable to think that I would do that. Um, Six is probably a little too much for the house, but maybe... 30, 35 grand for three miners and then the other 30 down payment on yeah, the F-150. Yeah, yeah I'll get my F-150. Yeah, I'll get the uh, the double the double stack to piss off a bomber. Well, if you worked <laughs> for Jeffrey Hildeband, you'd get to make that choice. He's handing out uh, to all Hill Corp employees that have been there more than six years, $75,000. On top of that, employees are also getting to direct 25 grand to the charity of their choice. What do you see, think about uh, this? What are you hearing out there? I see Tim and Stephanie in the background over here like, damn, dog, why the fuck do we work at Digital Wallcat? We need to go work <laughs> at Hillcorp and get us some $70,000, $75,000 bonuses. Look, Hillcorp's famous for this, right? I mean, they have always taken care of their employees um, when when the market allows. Um, but, you know, with that said, you know, I was talking to some Hillcorp uh, folks last year and was like, hey, you know, you guys working remote. You know, what are y'all doing as uh, the pandemic is happening? Like, no, nah, Hildebrand's like, hey, you want a fucking job? We're fighting for our lives right now. You get in the office and and work. And so that's what's expected of them. And, you know, Hillcorp's always been known for doing more with less. And that means that their employees bust their ass. And so that's why he takes care of them. And, um, you know, they've always been ever since I've been in the oil and gas industry, I've known that that Hillcorp takes care of their employees and gives them uh, huge bonuses like that. So one good for them, but you know, it's deserved. They, they earn it. So what I'm hearing, I talked to a headhunter this morning upstream. They're talking five to 7% raises as opposed to zero to 3% stuff talking retention bonuses. Midstream is kind of similar. Um, oil field service. No fucking way. I mean, just Bonuses are off the As table. Someone that raises. came up through the ranks of oil field service, it pisses me off so <laughs> bad that OFS just gets no love. Like, gets no love at all and never will because um, EMPs will always have downward pressure on pricing for them. And so it's just like, hey, you're lucky you have a job. Like, I feel, I feel it in my I'm gonna, right I'm going to just go ahead and throw some gasoline right on this fire. <laughs> I hear investment banking bonuses are going to be through the roof oh, this year. I don't. That's I don't. the that's the the rumor on the street. But the, the NBA boys are going to get paid for sure. <laughs> well, one last thing though, on this point, uh, I was Montrose Lane last week at a advisory board meeting, so they had all the companies in, 
And we were talking about this very issue, you know, salary inflation, recruiting talent and all the stuff you're hearing about. And one of the things I brought up and I'm going to give a speech on this earlier or early next year. And uh, so I'll flesh this out more. But if you look at the data, 65 percent of people that work at their job are dissatisfied. Twelve percent are physically trying to leave, shooting out resumes, et cetera. And it costs about 1.5 times somebody's salary when somebody leaves. That's replacement costs, disruptions to business and all. And that's just scratching the surface. I think we've all had an amazing amount of mental health type issues that we've had to deal with that were happening, I think, before the pandemic. But the pandemic really accelerated that. So I think an important issue going forward is cash compensation but it's also being able to provide emotional support and emotional security for your employees. And that's going to be a key thing in terms of retention and recruitment going forward. And I know I said that much more squishy than you normally talk about, but you're always a big fan of talking about the environment around here and how culture is important. Yeah. Culture is everything and taking care of your team's everything. Right. And so I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, it's not just monetary uh, benefits. It's, you know, how much support can you give to the people around you as well? Hey, Chuck, we had a comment on Twitter from Eric Bachman. He took a screenshot of you holding up the chalkboard. He said a chalkboard right on brand nimble fatty. I think Chuck looks, I think the view looks better with chalkboard in front of Chuck's face. I have a face for podcasting. <laughs> All right. Next story. Let's go over to some uh, oil and gas M&A. All right, Chuck. Your friends over in the private equity world over at NCAP have merged Advanced Energy Partners and Ameridev 2, both Delaware-based and producers, in a deal valued at $4 billion. According to uh, Reuters, the Ameridev management team, led by CEO Parker Reese, will run the show. What do you think, Chuck? Good deal right. or bad deal? All right. I got to get back on my soapbox, talk about this. You know, we, we know about the whole Smashco uh, phenomenon, right? Private equity smash companies together they go out to investors and they talk about gna savings strategic fit all that i've said on this podcast i've said on my podcast i'll say it again right here it's always bullshit when that happens what you're really doing when you do that is one you just look like you're taking action right that's half the job to your investors well we're taking action right but the second thing about it is you're burying losers so if you have a fund with 15 investments Five of those are 4X, five of those are 2X, and five of those are zero. If you look at the whole fund, that's a 2X fund, right? If you take all the zeros and merge it with the 4Xs, you will then have 10 companies with 2X. It's a 2X fund. The investors get the same amount of money. Investors, 99.9% .9 of the time will go, oh, we want 10 investments that are all 2X. That's less volatile. And you're like, no, I just shoved a loser and a winner together. <laughs> so that's what they're doing. That being said, it's math. I, <laughs> that, <laughs> that being said, I don't think that's what NCAP's doing here. NCAP's putting these two companies together because as we've talked about, you know, the M&A market's tough out there. There aren't a lot in the way of cash buyers. The only way you're going to get out of these things is ultimately through the public market and stocks. 
So putting these companies together gives them size to be able to take it public. They can merge with a SPAC. They're potentially going to get bought. If they get bought with somebody, they're going to have to take that person's stock. But that's what this is leading to. And then when you get the public stock, as we've talked about on this uh, podcast, you're dribbling that out kind of over time. So this is this is trying to trying to hit the uh, hole in two putts instead of make it in one. Got you. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a ton of consolidation over the last year, right? Um, it makes sense that you see the internal consolidation between portfolio companies as well. How did the teams like when this happened? I mean, is it usually? I imagine there's a bunch of uh, riff between the teams and who uh, actually takes control. Well, there are degrees. So one being it's like a tie, you know, a tie is like kissing your sister. You get that <laughs> from generally the winning team. We just, it's made, a, we just made the show weird. It's, it's an old sports quote. Come on, man. I didn't make that up. I forget who said that. Uh, anyway, but so the, the winning team doesn't like to do it. It's pain in the ass. You're merging land files, accounting files. You're screwing with a whole bunch of stuff, but they're getting to keep their job keep their equity in the company. And then the teams that are getting run off hate it. I mean, they've lost their job. You know, usually you get screwed on your equity, but quite frankly, your equity is not worth anything or you wouldn't be getting run off. So it's not pleasant for anyone involved. And just as someone that had to do it before, kind of sucks being the private equity guy too. It's, it's no fun for anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, moving out of oil and gas news, we had some pretty uh, terrible news over yeah. over the weekend with the uh, a tornado, which was, from what I heard, the first ever quad state tornado. So it passed through four four states. Um, tell me, you know, let, so, let's let's talk about this a little bit first. You know, our condolences to all the families and lives lost. It's just terrible when, you know, being in disaster zones between Hurricane Harvey and Ida and New Orleans. I mean, it's just devastating when you see that. But online, everyone starts politicizing the tragedy. I mean, as it's happening, did you see this happening on yeah. Twitter? Yeah, no, I was watching it. And, you know, you look and I think at this point, 90 people are reported having been killed in this. And there are at least 100 or more that are unaccounted for. So that number is going to go, go up. And, you know, you hear the story about the candle factory and the Amazon service center and the nursing home in Arkansas that get hit. And you're right. Politicians went quick to blaming global warming, but let's think about this kind of on two fronts. This is a bad tornado. It's the worst tornado since the tri-state tornado in 1925. Uh, which killed thousands of people. So if you think about it, we're having a, a tornado this bad one every 96 years. So, okay, tell me how that's global Let's bring up warming. this uh, tornado chart. And then yeah. here's just the flat-out data. I mean, basically all the politicians say, this is what we need to expect. These are bad tornadoes, extreme tornadoes. The measurement, I think, is called F3. Yeah, F3 uh, and over. And over. That doesn't look like to me they're going up. In fact, that looks like the number of them have actually gone down over time. Worst case, they've stayed flat. So I don't even see how that fits the data, particularly in a world where we're supposed to live about the science. Yeah. Well, I think if we've learned anything over the last two years is that no one uh, 
gives a shit about data or statistics and <laughs> we don't make decisions uh, or um, judgments based off of that. And so I just think one, I think that you're a sorry person. If actually this lady that was going viral on Twitter um, for politicizing the tornadoes, I sent her a message and invited her onto the podcast to talk about oil and gas and climate change and fracking and its impact on tornadoes. And she hasn't answered me, of course. Um, but it's just like, like one, like why even do it? Like people are hurting. You think like you get your house destroyed. The first thing you want to do is come out of your house and see someone bashing, um, you know, why this is happening. No one gives a fuck why just help fix, fix their life and the issues that they're facing immediately. But then to, you know, conflate weather events with climate on top of that and just sound like a dumbass is, you know, just kind of salt in the wound. Like this is my thing is that you can't have a tornado anymore. You can't have a forest fire. You can't have hurricanes. You can't have snow rain without it being climate change. Like people act like weather just doesn't exist and that it hasn't existed. Weather events haven't existed for the entirety of this planet. And it's just, it's frustrating and exhausting. Well, and I could even live with this tornado is caused by by global warming. If you want to say that, that's great. You need to preface it with, oh, by the way, we've had fewer tornadoes, fewer hailstorms this year than at any other time in history. You know, I mean, yeah. give a give us kind of all the data. It's it it. You're right. It does not lead to the discourse. It doesn't lead to any science. It doesn't lead to any acceptance or path forward. If you're going to cherry pick data and just throw stones. GW Goldman said, now, Chuck, if your data doesn't fit my narrative, it's wrong. And that's exactly <laughs> how that's exactly how the world operates today. I'm so, not sure what fits people, GW, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, what GW's narrative is. Speaking but. of the tie and kissing your sister. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, kidding. Did, that, that is GW's I'm kidding, narrative. <laughs> I'm kidding, GW. We love GW here at Digital Wildcatters. All Big right, fans. Go into our uh, unappreciated story of the week. That's my opinion. All right, Colin. Are you not going to address it? You just played the wrong clip. No, you set me up for that because see, it says right here on run of show. It says right there. That's my opinion. Because I'm <laughs> about to tell you that it does not. It says the unappreciated story of the week, and then you played my opinion. But I digress. Go ahead. I like that's my opinion. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> First podcast. I mean, literally 72 hours after I sent you the text of, hey, dude, you want my podcast? It was up. Me, BRV, and Shell Unikitty are talking about investing in oil and gas. I made a very impassioned plea that beta is what matters, that alpha is really hard to do in oil and gas. And let's look at some data. Some data. Let's look at some data. Let's go back. To the chalk. <laughs> so, Colin, when we look in the past year, WTI, the spot price is up 171%. I've never thought you should use the spot price in valuing an oil and gas company, even though the market seems to do that. I think you need something longer dated. So let's look at the four-year strip. It's up 142%. When you look up at the majors, they have a range of up 18% to up 47% for an average of, call it 25%. When you look at the large caps, they average 129%, but one of them was only up 18%. Another one was up 400%. When you look at the small caps, they average 123% up, 
One was down 62%. The high was up 363%. My point is choosing those stocks, figuring out which one's going up, which one's going down, it's just freaking hard. And look at where these averages shook out. If you would have just invested in oil, i.e. the beta, you would have done better. And beta, the oil, is actually the asset you need to diversify your portfolio. It's transportation fuel, right? Which is, in effect, GDP. I've talked about it a million times. Amazon stock does not run like that. Those trucks do not run everywhere except with cheap oil and cheap gasoline. So that's number one. Number two, oil has always been the best inflation hedge out there. You look at any, it's outperformed gold in terms of tracking uh, inflation in the U.S. dollar. So you want to own oil straight. So <clears throat> that's my opinion. I'm right. Beta matters. Unless yeah. you're Dan Pickering or Paul Sankey, don't choose stocks. Go invest but, in the commodity. But that's always been my problem is that there's too much agency risk with if I'm bullish on oil and gas, going through public equities isn't the best way to get exposure to that, right? And there's all different types of variables. You know, what does their hedge book look like? You know, how efficient are they as operators? And a lot of things are out of my control. Like, I don't know shit about that EMP and how they're actually going to perform. Um, I just want access to the uh, underlying commodity. But then the problem is, as someone like me, how do I get access to the underlying commodity? Well, I can either go buy and operate wells, which I've done that, lost my ass on that. I don't want to do that again. Um, I can buy that, futures. That would be alpha because you bought certain wells. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. You know, uh, you can access uh, futures, but you know, for the average person that just wants, um, you know, and you saw this last year, oil goes negative, and all the retail, all the Robinhood traders, they start piling into uh, USO. Uh, USO, and we all know, you know, that is not a great vehicle to make that, uh, you know, to to put money in and have direct correlation with oil prices so yeah that's um there's just not a lot of ways to play that if you're not an institutional investor yeah unless you can trade on the nymex you're you're right about that i think the i think we've seen two big decouplings on that front one institutional investors believe that oil price is going to be fixed at 60 for the rest of time mm -hmm. and so the optionality that you would get in a stock price because oil might run to 100, that's not there anymore. So part of that is the reason from the decoupling um, of oil prices and stock performance. The second thing that we've talked about a million times on here is when energy transition starts happening, you're not oil price anymore. You're wind farms, you're solar farms, you're carbon uh, projects and all that. And so it's only going to get worse. Yeah. All right, round out this week. Let's get into our favorite segment, Finger of the Week. And those savings are starting to reach drivers. Now, today, the average price you're paying here in Kansas City is below $2 a gallon, $3 a gallon. It's down to $2.90 a gallon. 20% down from cents for, from a month ago. Nationally, prices are down seven cents a gallon. Continue to. Our boy Tim brought up a good point. Like, we can't hear those videos on our side when they play. 
and Tim was watching. He's like, you can just tell he doesn't he doesn't know what he's saying <laughs> without even hearing it. <laughs> the uh, shocking upset this week. Yeah, GW said, "Is it Elizabeth Warren again? She no. lost her reign, had three weeks in a row of being finger of the week, which honestly it's going to be hard to beat that moving forward in the future." But uh, she lost it this week. Our boy Brandon might be up to it. Brandon, <laughs> yeah, Brandon, Brandon could do it for but, sure. I mean, how ridiculous is this? You've seen a blip down in gasoline prices of seven cents. I mean, that could mean that a refinery shut down for for maintenance work. I mean, seven cents is nothing. Yet that is the talking point out there in terms of I am saving you, America, for seven cents a gallon. Yeah, that's why I can never be a politician because I can't get up there and just bullshit someone <laughs> like that, knowing well that it's not making a difference. Nor um, can you be a private equity fund yeah. manager. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Um, an honorary mention this week is uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom. He's moving forward with plans to decommission California's last clean nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon, which powers 3 million homes or roughly 10% of California's electricity output. It's a big finger of the week, man. You can't you can't demonize hydrocarbons and then decommission your nuclear uh, base load. I mean, this guy loves hydrocarbons, right? And they're just going to keep uh, importing uh, coal and nat gas and oil and um, doing things that are counter uh, productive to what they're actual, you know, what they're saying, what they're telling the public. You can do it when you know the governor's mansion is not going to be cut off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. So. Hey, Colin, real quick before we go, I got nothing but great feedback on the shale video documentary that you guys did. It was uh, it was really good. Give us a story from Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. So we went there and we did the premiere um, last Wednesday uh, with Toby and uh, Toby Rice from EQT and Larry Kane. And, you know, shout out to those guys for making it happen. Uh, shout out to uh uh Basil and Zimmy uh for actually shooting it and producing it. You know, that thing was months in, in the making and everyone's like, Oh, y'all gotta tell these stories all over and we want to, but also it's like a shit ton of work to put that together. So um, you know, we uh we got it up on our YouTube now. So if you haven't checked it out, go watch it. Go to Digital Wildcatters. It should be on the front page. Um you can see it. it's called American Shell, a new hope. Really great story. 15 minutes. Uh, it's pretty funny. Someone asked me before the premiere, they said, Hey, is this family friendly? Can the kids watch it? And I was like, yeah, sure. And, uh, we're sitting there during, you know, after the premiere, um, it's me and Toby and Larry and we're doing a Q and a, and they have glass windows on their wall. And this, uh, guy walks out of a liquor store next door and he's pissed off at the cashier, some crackhead. And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> and Toby's talking and Toby just smirks. And I was like, oh, yeah, that definitely picked up on the mics. And so uh, whoever I told that it was family friendly, I apologize. I thought it was family friendly. Um, I can't control uh, what angry people at the liquor store are doing. Children need positive role models and negative role <laughs> yeah. models that can be corrected. We had, uh, we had the contrast between the <laughs> two. So, yeah, if you guys haven't checked that out, go check it out on YouTube. And also make sure to subscribe to the BDE newsletter on digitalwildcatters.com. And we will catch you guys next week at Tuesday, 1030 a.m. Central.